0: 2016 BBC documentary called Hyper Normalization employs masterfully edited found footage to investigate how, at a time of confusing and inexplicable, world events, politicians and other power brokers construct new and slippery realities. Curtis tells a story that begins in 1975 in New York and Damascus and ends with the world as it is today. we we're joined today by one of the premier film uh, makers and documentary filmmakers uh, in working today, and that would be Adam Curtis. He's an award-winning, widely influential documentary filmmaker and journalist. His previous works include such films as The Century of the Self, Power of Nightmares, All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace, and he is here today to talk about his new film, Hypernormalization, as well as talk about his appearance uh, at the CineFamily, uh, this week he's going to be here for a couple of days uh talking about some of his films, screening some of his uh, hypernormalization as well as some films that have influenced his work as well. Adam Curtis, welcome to film school. Thank you well, thank you so much um you know i'm sure you've been asked this a thousand times, and I'm just going to ask this question again and hopefully a little more creatively but the, the work that went into hypernormalisation and um, the theory behind the work feels like something that you have been working towards for a while. But what was it about this particular film that? What is it about this film that you felt you needed to make today?
1: Um, I mean, what I am—I mean, my job is a television journalist for the BBC, but I, I sort of interpret that a little more widely sometimes. I, sort of have, I have an idea that, that we live in a very emotional time and people feel things a lot. And I just had this sense that, that what people were feeling today is very uncertain about what they were being told. I mean, there's not just, it's not just that we distrust politicians or we distrust a lot of elites. It's that we have a sense that things are a bit odd and sometimes rather fake. And it, it's a feeling that we have in the back of our minds. And what I wanted to do is to bring that forward, to actually say, well, why do we feel that? And try and explain, go back into history and explain why there is this great sense of uncertainty. Because yeah. uh, I think it is prevalent. and I think it's 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 not just suddenly, because of the recent elections in my country, your the Brexit and your presidential election, It's it's been growing for a very long time, that sense of uncertainty. And I just wanted to, well, tell the history of that feeling, really. That's what I...
0: Yeah, and...
1: So it's, to modern emotional history.
0: Yeah. And I have to tell you that uh, someone who has been around a while, uh, lived through the 60s and the 70s, and obviously uh, through the the modern era, and um, you did with hyper normalization, I, I agree that there is a sense. That and they 're statistically proven to be true that what people care about in general, if you took a poll and many polls have been taken of the American people or the issues that are most important to them and and, and it 's almost by a random act that these Issues are ever dealt with in an effective way, in, in, in or any way at all by our elected officials. It's it's the it's again a very very small percentage of the things that actually matter to people are actually yeah. legislated in in our country, and I assume to some extent in Britain as well. So there's this there is this sense that it just really doesn't matter, and it's so yeah. You're right. I mean, I, I I guess I'm restating what you said. I don't mean to do that, but I agree. There is a sense that we've just kind of I mean, lost control. I think
1: it's, Go I mean, ahead. One has to, be, okay, one has to give the politicians a, a bit of flack. It's partly us to blame. I mean, we are highly emotional these days. I mean, every age has its own behavior pattern, and our behavior pattern these days is to be very emotional about everything. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's the thing I traced in that series you mentioned at the beginning called The Century of the Self, the rise of the idea that what we feel what we desire, what we imagine, is the most important thing in the world. It's it's different from previous ages when we were told a lot of what we what was important for us. Today, it's what we feel, and what but but because that is the dominant thing. Politicians find that very difficult to deal with because in the past, if you had a group of people and you just told them what was good for them, they tended to do it. Now it's like herding little piglets. <laughs> we're all wanting to go our own way, and but but what I was trying to do with that with that film is is not just to try and explain what has happened, it's to try and explain why, in an age of feeling, the feelings we have have become so anxious, so uncertain, so untrustworthy of the actual reality we're told about, um, which, you know, has come to a a dramatic point with the election of your new president. But but prior to that, before that, there there was this growing sense that what we were told about reality, what was actually being informed, not just by politicians, but by journalists, by economists, just wasn't real. I mean, do you remember the, the economic crisis of 2008? None of those groups who were supposed to inform us about what was out there in the world saw it coming. Yeah. A bit like the crash of the Soviet Union yes. 20 years before. Yes. They just didn't see it coming. So, so we tend to now distrust all that. And we get this sense that actually what we're told is real beyond our own experience is not really possibly real. So we tend to retreat into our own tiny little bubbles where the only thing we can trust is our own experience. Yeah. And I want to explain how we got to that point, how we how we found ourselves in those bubbles.
0: We're speaking with uh, director Adam Curtis. He is here in town for a couple of days uh, starting next Friday. Uh, the, he'll be at the CineFamily uh, screening some films, uh, Star Trip, Starship Troopers and Show and & Tell. He'll be there Uh, for an in-person, I assume, Q&A after the fact. Hyper-normalization will be screening on Saturday the 18th at 6.30. Uh, Again, we'll be there for an in-person Q&A. And then following day on Sunday, for The Passenger as well as Blowout, uh, a couple of uh, influential films. Uh, The Passenger uh, was a Michelangelo Antioni. It's Antonioni. Yeah, thank you, and as well as Blowout, which is a Brian De Palma film. Uh, he will be there as well. Um, let's go back to the film, Hypernormalization, and talk about this very interesting initial thread that you pull into the film, which is goes back to 1975 and Syria, and how how some things... <laughs> the, the fact that this is this kind of point in history that you picked out to, to sort of begin this... Our, our journey through your film um, is so fascinating in and of itself. But explain a, just a little bit about why that ha- why 1975 uh, Damascus was so important.
1: Well, I chose 1975 because I think the 1970s was the period at which you can really trace the growth of uncertainty and untrustworthiness. It, it, it's, it's a, it was the middle of an economic crisis, where those the, the sort of liberal dream that politics could change the world and the Was collapsing, Um, and I think the roots of a lot of our uncertainty can be traced back to that. The reason I chose Syria as one of the stories, one of the threads in it, is firstly because I don't think anyone's done a proper history explaining where the roots of the modern crisis in Syria and its effect on the whole of the Middle East. So I wanted to do that, but also because if you do go back to that, what you discover is the fact that actually a lot of how would one say a lot of the chaos that we now face in the Middle East, which has spilled over into terrorism in my country and in your country, goes back to the the confrontation between the then Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger, and the then President of Syria, this father of the President Assad today, and their failure to deal with the the problem of Israel and Palestine. And I just wanted to trace it to that, because I think that is an important thing to realize, is that the failure to actually achieve some kind of serious peace I mean, this is now, I'm not taking any position on this. Right. I'm just saying, saying that the, the, the failure to achieve a proper comprehensive settlement between Israel and Palestine in 1975-76 has led to a lot of seizing... Well, actually, as the senior president Assad said at the time to Kissinger, you are releasing demons that are hidden under the surface of the Middle East. And mm-hmm. I think... I'm not saying it's the only reason, but it, it's very, very important And I just wanted to show that because it's sort of like terrorism happens and journalists and politicians go, oh, my God, it's terrorism. And everyone forms another bureaucracy to keep us safe. No one ever really tries to understand why. Uh, And I was just – one of the things I was trying to do in this film is just explain why. Not take aside, just explain it.
0: Yeah. It's so effective. I I want to underscore to my audience how – uh, how remarkable your film is in terms of uh, pulling together these different threads and, and tying them into a very cohesive and uh, relatable, accessible understanding of a very complex situation. Um, in my And I'm just going to render a quick opinion here, and please, Adam, feel free to contradict me if you feel differently, but it does feel like the world is, is sort of reliving the world just prior to World War One. And so much of what happened in the lead-up to World War One had to do with this part of the world. It feels like there's a fracturing of of, of societies around the world and that this – we're coming back around to to this kind of a – this sort of incendiary environment that we live in now. And I, and I fear for us moving forward. But knowledge is power. And what I think you've done with this film is give us a greater context – does it is that sound right to you, this the sort of I, – I just feels like we keep coming back to this, the these artificial lines that were drawn in the sand in, in the Middle East and had the influence, the impact it's had on those societies in such detrimental ways.
1: Is that – Well, I think it's always very dangerous. I'm not going to contradict you because that would be rude. <laughs> okay, but I, I just think it's very dangerous to try and say we are just like them. I think you can learn from them. Okay. And I think there are two things – to, to know from that point, just before the First World War, it's not, it wasn't really the Middle East; it was the Balkans. Mm. It was um, were, were really there had been three Balkan wars, I think, prior to the First World War. There was a sense of a collapse of power in the old empires. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah. And also after the First World War, in the peace that was made by the victors at Versailles in 1918 and 1919 they did draw lines in the sand which are now coming back to haunt us, I mean, especially in Syria and in Iraq. Yeah. Um, that's true, and we can learn from that, and we should know that. And, and those who decided to invade Iraq in 2003 were so cosmically stupid not to realise that, yeah. that what they, what they saw as a simple society was one that we had actually constructed ourselves, and what it hid was a very complex society underneath. That's true, you can learn from all that, but I don't think today is like then. I mean, I think... I mean, the answer is no-one knows. Yeah. I think we've lived through a very lazy time from 1945 to the mid-1990s when it was a sort of simple Cold War, when everything was frozen and it all seemed simple. What you've returned to now is the question of power and power politics. Yeah. And again, I go back to the failure of journalism and politics. politicians. is They have failed to keep us informed about how power really works. What they wanted to tell us was we lived in a nice society where we were all individuals who were free to choose what we wanted to do and buy what we wanted, which was very good and, very, and lovely. And, and it was a fantastic moment of time in history that we could actually live that consumerist society. The language that disappeared in the last 30, or 40 years is the language of power. we have noticed no one talks about it. No one talks about power. But actually, if you look at the Middle East, if you look at what's happening in Turkey, if you look at what's happening between the relationship between America and Russia at the moment, these are questions of big power. and But we are not, we haven't been educated to even think like that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, the whole question of power has been banished into the world of fiction. I mean, that's what Game of Thrones is all about. It, it doesn't feature in our real world. And I think we need to be re-educated about that instead of suddenly saying, oh, Mr. Putin is an evil man. No, he's not. He's dealing with, well, I mean, he probably is, but he's dealing with complex questions of power for his country and its relationship to the Middle East, as we are and your country, uh, as we in Europe are and your country. is. But we just don't have the language to understand it at the moment. And that's sort of one of the things I was trying to point out in this film is we've got to get back to understanding how power works in the world. It isn't the same as the First World War, but the roots of the, quest- the struggles for power do go back to that time. I, I agree with that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I and I uh, correct my my earlier statement about that. I agree. I, it's post-World War One. That's you're right. And that's a more precise way to frame it than than what I said. Um, the film is called Hyper Normalization. You can see it this coming Saturday night. Uh, that's March 18th at the Cinefamily, which is on uh, Fairfax near Melrose, across the street from Fairfax High. Great place to see a film. Great uh Environment for people to go to see this because the staff everyone there is, is just wonderful about uh, yeah, and passionate and, and passionate about their films um, and their and their impact and I have to say one of the reasons i 've sort of launched into that that little bit of history and uh, my interpretation of it is your film so much begs us to ask these questions that you 're talking about real power, the dynamics of power on a world stage, and even within our own country. Uh, all kinds of things are brought up in your film and uh, for that alone it, it is a remarkable um document but it, but aside from that it's very good storytelling and i have to say um, you're welcome and i want to say compliment you as our as our guide in this journey through your through your film is so it, it's it just it has your voice has a certain gravitas to it that just feels so appropriate okay. for the film I just I, I mean, I'm just saying as a as someone who just wants to watch a film and wants to watch a good film, it is a really enjoyable experience on that level to to have you there uh, as someone to to, uh, you know, pointing the way through your film, because there's a lot going on. There's a lot of, well, I'll say, complex issues that you deal with in this film, Um what has been the reaction? We, uh, we, we haven't had an opportunity to see your film here in the United States uh, to the degree that I'm hoping will, will happen. Um, what's been the reaction within, within Britain and other places where you've had an opportunity to to, to be with an audience and, and, and hear their reactions?
1: Well, I mean, the reaction to this film in Britain was very positive. It, it sort of hit a nerve. I mean, I, I was very worried about it. Uh, as I was making it, because what I was essentially saying in the film is a lot of what you think you know, you don't know. Mm -hmm. It may be unreal, it may be fake, you've withdrawn into a bubble. And then, as I was editing it, the Brexit vote in my country happened, and I sort of thought, well, (laughs) they didn't see that coming. Uh, And maybe I am sort of touching on something right, which is that we don't know we really don't understand what's happening in our own society so i kept editing and then I, we put out the film just before uh, the election in your country and the same thing was true there so i i i had that that thing that i think journalists sometimes you you hit a nerve you, yeah. you you're lucky you got your timing right yeah. um partly because i probably took so too long to edit it. it 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 touched nerve and it was seen as prescient um it No, know. it's been very well received. I made it, the reason you were talking about how complicated it was or how many threads it has, I made it, I didn't make it for a traditional BBC television channel. I made it, it's long, it's two and three quarter hours long, and I made it deliberately to put it up straight online on a thing called BBC iPlayer. Um, And I did that because what it allows people to do is to stop and start, you can bookmark it, you can go back to where you stopped, Although it's a film, you treat it more like a book. It, it, yeah. You can make something that's far more complex and involving uh, in a way that if you were just doing something that was going to be seen live on television, you couldn't do, mm-hmm. where you have to simplify much more. Um, and I think that's possibly the coming thing that you just make things straight for art to put online, where where you treat your audience in a more sophisticated way. You say, "Come on, catch up. If you can't catch up, go back and watch it again." <laughs> You're slightly more not arrogant. You're slightly more saying, come on, be clever. Uh, I mean, I can't talk about your country, but in my country, I've got a bit fed up with the documentaries that are being made there because they treat the audience in such a patronising way where everything has to be explained as if you're explaining to a two-year-old, when in fact, actually, your audience tends to be quite mature and sophisticated. There's a sort of patronising simplicity to it, whereas if you make things for online, you you, you can treat your audience in a more adult way uh, and that's what I've done with this film. And again, there's been a big response to that. They really like it.
0: The audience, I think. Well, I, I, yes. And it, I, I'm, I'm not surprised to hear that they do like it. It is a, it is a remarkable documentary. And as has been your other work, I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention at least some of them. Uh, all watched over by Machines of Loving Grace uh, and The Century of the Self, as well. If people want to find out more about you, do we have a link to a, a personal website or somewhere we could go find out no, more?
1: No, I sort of refuse to do that. Okay. I just What I found is, is in, our, in the modern age, uh, you put a film out on television. Within about five minutes, it goes up onto YouTube. The BBC squeals and tries to get it taken down, but you can't, you know, then it goes up again. Uh, I think the great. What's the word? The, the great joy of the internet is you go and find stuff yourself, okay. and okay. Uh, I just allow my films to go like that. Right. Because I think, again, going back to what I was saying about, Pat, you don't want to patronize more. Audience. Right. Audiences okay. don't like being patronized. If they want to go and find out stuff, you can now do that online, and it's more exciting to go and do it yourself.
0: And But we'll have to leave it there. Continue this remarkable work. I. Truly hope that you'll find some time to come back uh, when, uh, whenever you feel like it. Whenever something else is coming out, I would love to have you back on. And uh, I appreciate your work and truly, truly keep it up. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Great, thank you very much.
0: Thank you. That was Adam. That is Adam Curtis, director of Hypernormalization. Thank you.
1: Thank you.